Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, when I was in Japan, I, we had a little bit of yard and I was building a playhouse and I was trying to be real cheap and so I was using rusty nails and straightening them out and I was out late one night trying to build their playhouse and I ran a rusty nail into my hand and didn't think much about it. The next day I was in class teaching and I saw the veins in my arm had all turned bright red and I clearly had blood poisoning. And so we went to the local doctor and he gave me a tetanus shot. But he sent me to the big university hospital and the doctors there um, they looked at me and they came with very bad news that apparently I had a blood disease my blood platelets were oversized and too few and they told me that I could not risk traveling into Tokyo in the next several days that I'd have to quit my job and I'd have to check into the hospital um, and from their description I got the idea of, my time's up you know, it's been a good life uh, Nice family, you know, sorry, but, um, and Faith and I went home, we looked it up and, you know, what could, they didn't really tell us what they thought, but we looked up all the, you know, it was basically two possibilities. Both of them, I would, I was going to die, you know, soon, that my, my days were finished. And I begin to feel pretty bad, you know, that you're you're dying, and you know I kind of begin to you know to stay in my pajamas all day and kind of start shuffling around, and yeah, I feel death weighing down on me. Um, I begin to I I really think I was feeling like well I can almost feel my life ebbing away here, right. But then we went back to the hospital for the next appointment. It was two young doctors that uh, they were about 13 years old, I think. Uh, and they called me and they said, you know, we made a mistake. <laughs> You're not dying. Uh, it turns out I have these strange blood platelets. Um, and yet I had really, I, I had started the process. I was, you know, I was already dying. Um, I sometimes wonder what would have happened if I had just gone on believing what the doctors had told me. Uh, there is a case like that. A man named Sam Schumann. He was diagnosed with liver cancer. And he's told, well, your, your scan is abnormal. You've got extensive cancerous growth. Uh, and you've probably you've only got a few months to live. And so Sam decided, well, I, the thing, my goal will be to celebrate Christmas with my relatives. And so he left the hospital in October. He made it through Christmas. He was readmitted on New Year's Day. And he died within 24 hours. But then the doctors looked at his liver again. They were wrong. 
there was a little tiny growth, but nothing, they had botched the whole thing. That somebody had botched the x-ray. There was a little two centimeter nodule that could not have possibly killed him. And this has become a famous case. There's been several studies. Why did Sam Schumann die? Uh, well, because he thought he was going to die, and all the people around him said he was going to die, and he died. Uh, and this, of course, we used to live on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And my father always argued this, that apparently there was a, a case of a shaman there who went to court because a man in the tribe had gangrene in his leg. And the, the man argued, the shaman argued that he had as much likelihood to heal the man as the typical medical doctor. And of course, you know this, the, the, that in these tribes that if a shaman should curse you, there's many instances where they've, they've studied cases that people have been cursed and then they, they, they die, literally, from believing they'll die. Now my point here is there is no question that our beliefs can help us thrive or apparently they can kill us. And so my title, The God-Shaped Mind, the idea being that our understanding of God, that's, there's nothing more important, that our understanding of who God is shapes our mind. It shapes how we believe. It shapes our life. And there's literally studies now that there's a whole science of this that uh, show that our view of God, you know, is God angry? Is God punishing? Is God loving? That will literally affect the shape of your brain. They can literally look at your brain through magnetic resonance imaging and see that people have, who have different beliefs, in fact, their, their brain, literal brain is different, their mind is different. I believe we can extend this understanding to a broad claim about the way belief impacts our minds and thoughts. And I'm going to use the Gospel of John, but I think that John is just an example. We could use the whole New Testament. Uh, about the belief, uh, of course, is the way that we have life. In John 20, this is where I'm reading, John 20, 30 to 31. Here is the thesis of the Gospel of John. Here's why he's telling us about the life of Christ. I believe it could be a thesis for the whole New Testament. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is a witness meant to bring people to belief. And this belief is going to be an alternative knowledge. He's, always, he's going to really describe it as an alternative world. He uses the word cosmos or world. He links the false knowledge. If you have a false understanding, this is darkness. This will kill you. And he describes the reason for Christ's coming as to get rid of this death-dealing darkness and to give us life. 
And so for John, the present experience, how do you know God? It rests on the fact that Jesus came historically. He's going to tell us the stories of Jesus. These are the things he did. And the disciples, you know, in 2.11, it says they believed in him. And this, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to say what this belief is in a very precise way. And what this belief counters, that is, what is believing and what is the alternative? They believe in him in conjunction with the water being turned into wine. You know, that after the Jerusalem Passover, it says many believed in his name because of the signs that he was doing. But Jesus adds here, he says that he would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. So knowing Jesus completely and believing completely, it unfolds gradually. That is, I think we can look at the book of John and we can look, well, we can look at the New Testament and see what's happening to people, what's changing about them, that they're turning from life, you know, from death to life. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. There is an inherent incapacity. They did not know him. They did not receive him. But it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And I think this is key. We become adapted into God's family. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born... You know, this is the theme of John, of rebirth, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I believe we can get a diagnosis. We've been given a bad diagnosis, but in fact is a lie. And this constitutes people's world, and it's killing them. And the power which gave birth to creation through Christ, provides new birth through his word. So human will, or the will to know. In other words, I think we're driven in a way in which Christ cannot be received. It says they did not receive him. The specific way in which they knew, their religion, that fostered, you know, that understanding fostered in the world, it creates and created in, in them an incapacity. And it's this incapacity I want to talk about today. I think that we could begin to give a diagnosis of this incapacity that caused them not to be able to receive Christ. To say, John says they didn't know him, even though he came, even though they'd been waiting for him. And so throughout John, he will connect this darkness to these people who walk in darkness. That is, they're creating, they're generating this darkness. And so there's a belief system or a knowledge system, sort of like my false diagnosis, that is incapacitating and death-dealing. And so belief takes on a very specific meaning in John. I believe this is not the the same thing as the world's believing. I don't know if you've, this story is told that the, fam, the, the famous scientist, Niels Bohr, uh, that he had a visitor come to his house and Niels Bohr had a horseshoe up, a lucky horseshoe he had put up on the wall. 
And the visitor said, why, Dr. Bohr, I'm surprised that a man of your great scientific mind and ability would believe such nonsense as a lucky horseshoe. And it kind of made Bohr a little mad. He snapped back. He said, well, I also do not believe in it. But I have it there because I am told that it works even if one does not believe in it. It's, you know, the act of hanging the horseshoe. I put it up and it's enough to have nailed it to the wall. This is the way religion, by the way, works in Japan. You go, you go to the local shrine and catch people in the middle of the prayers. You tap them on the shoulder. I've never done this, but I'm thinking theoretically. You ask them, are you religious? It's probably the case they will say, oh, no, no, I'm not religious at all. Um, and, and in fact, most people in Japan, like 80% say they're non-religious, but the same percentage, very high percentage, up into the 90 percentile, will go to the shrines and temples on every special occasion, New Year's. So they're the most religious, irreligious people there are. They don't, uh, their prayers, you know, at the shrine, uh, they, they, uh, direct belief is not necessary. Uh, the religion, the rituals, the priests, the regular observances relinquish one of having to directly believe. The Jewish religion, I believe, is one long demonstration of a kind of incapacity of religion. There's a kind of passivity to change people. You know, the wrong understanding of Judaism is that the law, the temple, the priests are believing for you and it is enough to obey the law. It's enough to do the rituals. It's enough to be a Jew, to believe indirectly and you'll be saved. And the distance between circumcision and the circumcised heart there's a world of difference and that's the point that you know actually it's there in the old testament there's a world of difference between sacrifice in the temple and a life sacrifice to god and so it's part of the purpose of the law to demonstrate that and the jews misunderstood And so we talked about this last week, you know, the Sabbath controversies. Jesus continually forces the question, which is preferable, to do the right thing? You know, in the case of the paralytic, should he heal him? Or by doing nothing to obey the law? And the belief in the law, like religious belief in general, and perhaps maybe this is just the human condition. Uh, Actually, uh, Robert Fowler has come up with a a word. He calls it interpassivity. That is that we distance ourselves from our own beliefs. We might just call it impassivity. There is an unwillingness or incapacity for change, which leaves the heart and the character untouched, And the religion reinforces this. If the law is an end in itself, such that all that is necessary on the Sabbath, you know, oh, well, just leave the paralyzed man paralyzed and you obey the law. Do nothing. And that's keeping the law. And Jesus says, no, my father and I are both 
working up until now. And the Pharisees say, well, the law is doing it. And that's enough. And so the Pharisees would leave the paralyzed man on the, the mat. In a sense, that's kind of the way they are before the law. They're paralyzed. Their paralysis describes their stand in regard to the law. Not only is there nothing that can be done, but nothing should be done. They say to the man, who told you to carry your pallet? And Jesus counters this, well, my father and I, this is, you're missing the purpose of the Sabbath. You're missing the purpose of Judaism. And I believe that we can miss the purpose of Christianity if we imagine that we believe in belief. The church is doing it for me. The preacher or the priest or the sacraments or the, is doing it for me. And we do not need to believe directly. It's enough to kind of believe in belief. And so the notion that the law was automatically, you know, we've had this in our country. It's separating families. It's hurting children. There's nothing that can be done. I believe this illustrates the great potential for evil in this interpassivity. It reminded me of Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. We just watched the movie, you know, the Eichmann on trial. And he gets up, he says, well, uh, I was just obeying orders. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I'm just a good, you know, bureaucrat. I was just obeying the law. And he, in, under this auspices of being a good bureaucrat, obeying the law, the Jews under the auspices of just being good religious Jews are doing evil. And so there's this incapacity. Maybe it's, it's professed, it's justified by religious systems, which gets at the root of human evil. The law is doing it. It is hurting the children, oppressing women, keeping the disenfranchised, the sick, the paralyzed, the halt, the lame in their place. And the law is a force unto itself and nothing is to be done. That's what the Pharisees argue. That's what our politicians argue. And this is a problem we can see, I think, just in the world in general. Uh, Maybe it's more difficult for us to see it within ourselves. You know, this is Paul's depiction of the belief system in which we distance ourselves from ourselves. I do what I'm do. I do not want to do. I'm doing it, but I'm not willing myself to do it. I don't want to be doing it, or I'm doing it though I want to be doing it. I don't want to be doing it, or vice versa. In other words, there is an incapacity of the will. And so the irony in this is that there is a Christianity which would, I think, reinforce this passive subservience to the law. Now, I'm going to say an odd thing here, and I need to explain it, and that is that there is a disavowal of power given over to the law in a Christianity which simply pits law against grace. That is, they become two incommensurate things. The two domains, law and grace, don't in any way address one another. And what we've just seen is, well, no, Jesus is intervening. There is a specific thing, a specific problem 
that he's intervening in the Sabbath controversies, that Paul is intervening. And it has to do with our orientation, this interpassivity, this incapacity. And not only is Christ's direct engagement with and suspension of the law then obscured in a Christianity, you know, along with the death-dealing nature of this, but the Christian challenge to the principalities and powers of this world is rendered inoperative. That's what the book of John is about, isn't it? That there is a cosmos of darkness that Christ is undoing. And if we can't name the darkness, we can't describe how it's working, either out there in the world or within, I'm not sure those are two different things, then we're just going to be subject to this kind of passive, oh, the law's doing it in Japan, you know, in Buddhism. It's karma is working itself out. Destiny is unfolding. And there's nothing to be done. So in a law versus grace Christianity, I think this law is doing it, or maybe even faith is doing it, is allowed to stand as there is a disavowal that Christianity directly addresses the law at the cosmic level, you know, the dark cosmos, um, the belief systems, the knowledge systems of this world, and at the microcosmos within the individual. The doctors have given us a fatal diagnosis. They have described our disease, and if we believe it, it will kill us. Our faith system may be such that we have not challenged the diagnosis. And that's what I'm describing here. The law of sin and death within the microcosmos, the macrocosmos of the person, the, you know, it, if this goes unchallenged, it will run its course. The law, that's why they call it the law of sin and death. In certain forms of Christianity, then the passivity of the individual, maybe we could just say, oh, it's grace that's doing it. Nobody goes around and says law that's doing it. It's grace doing it so that I do not have to. You know, the church, all of that. You're doing, you know, it's a good thing I come to church because you're doing my believing for me. I don't have to believe directly. That's the wrong idea, right? No, we believe directly. Um, If we imagine that someone else or something else can do this for us in the sense that there is a disavowal of the interior work of the law that needs to be countered. I believe that this is what we get at imputed righteousness. You know, the grace is doing it for me. We get a a Christianity that would say, I need not work out my salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul commands us to do. I need not put forth effort. All I need is then to have faith in faith. And so when we talk about belief in John... It allows for the possibility, it's a complete reorientation, an undoing of the fundamental lie. The law is doing that. Maybe we could call it traversing the fantasy. Seeing the reality of our own impassiveness. We die with Christ. And this is the limit experience maybe of our destitution, where the contradiction of the law is exposed. You know, the law promotes what it forbids. 
you shall not covet, and then it promotes coveting. And so it, the new birth, resurrection, transitioning from blindness to sight, describes the dispelling of one world order for another. Those who were made dead to the law through the body of Christ no longer serve the letter of the law. That is, they no longer serve this obscene impassivity, the negative force of sin attached to the law, which causes the law to give rise to sin. A Christianity that does not recognize, you know, Jesus, Paul, the New Testament, what do they do? How are we saved? It's through the suspension of the power of the law of sin and death. And if we don't recognize it, we're just going to reduplicate it in the form of our own faith. And this is what we get in a kind of law and order Christianity that imagines faith obliges a kind of passive submission to the law of the land and it fails to address the law of sin and death working within. So obviously, you know, if Jesus had obliged this interpassivity, he would not have challenged the Jewish authorities on the Sabbath day. He would have ceased healing on the Sabbath. Uh, he would have, you know, not broken the Roman seal, commanding that he stay in the tomb, that he stay dead. Uh, the apostles would have ceased preaching. That is, that Christianity is in tension with the diagnosis of the world. Christianity is challenging this diagnosis. Uh, that it is in tension with the law. Or the notion that the law is doing it, so that there is nothing to be done. It's only through believing that the children of God are born and that we go through the transformation of the mind, the putting off of the false diagnosis, the shedding of the interpassive notion. And John is emphatic that the only one who has ascended to heaven and can fully reveal heavenly things is Jesus who has first come down from heaven. That is, it's in this specific person, Christ. John's vision, then, is a reversal of the notion of a passive, abstract, indirect belief. He says, grace and truth were present in the law, but they came more fully in Christ. This is because Christ's word, his Torah, becomes flesh. Moses saw only part of God's glory, but in Jesus all of God's character is unveiled. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Paul has said something similar. Because Jesus is God's image in 2 Corinthians. Those who behold him are being transformed into the same image. So there's a battle. There's an ongoing battle between knowing, seeing, believing, and the darkness and light. The darkness constitutes the, the world of man, uh, and yet the darkness has not you know, overcome. It's not overtaken it. And by the end of the gospel, the light is firmly established. In John 2.8, the darkness is passing by and the true light is shining. And John unfolds the, this battle in a kind of progressive way. What I think we have here is a different diagnosis. The doctors come back and say, 
the great physician comes back and says, you're healed, you're well, you have life, you have life more abundantly. And darkness is the creature's self-contradictory shutting off itself from the light. The idea that we're subject to the diagnosis of the law. This is just religion. The other illustration is in Tibetan Buddhism, you can take your prayer and you attach your prayer to a prayer wheel. And then you spin the prayer wheel and you just hold the prayer wheel up. And the prayer wheel does your praying for you. And you can watch television, you know, as you're praying. Just keep spinning the, the prayer wheel. Um, you don't need to chant. It's sort of like TV, you know. You go home, watch TV, and there's the laugh track on TV. You know, some people think, oh, it's just telling me where the funny joke is so I can laugh along. But of course, after a long day, a hard day at work, and you go and you watch TV, you really just don't have the energy even to laugh. And so the TV laughs for you. Uh, You can be completely impassive. That's the beauty of television watching. Um, But the danger is that this is our approach to life. That religion done wrongly relieves you of life itself. It is not just that the church or others do your believing for you. The danger is in they are, are doing your living for you. And the law, the temple, you know, faith in faith, it isn't, it isn't there also the danger of, you know, that we're missing out on the, the main thing. My believing, maybe my believing is not direct. It is more of a faith in faith. And so the paradox of this, there is, uh, of distancing ourselves, distancing ourselves, kind of in an interpassive under, understanding, I think that's the universal problem. You know, nailing the horseshoe, spinning the prayer wheel, employing. You know, they used to be you could, you didn't have to go to the funeral yourself. You could just pay somebody and they'd go weep for you. Well, that's something that you can do life that way. You know, just uh, have somebody else go to the gym and exercise for you. See how that works out. Uh, there is relief from the injunction to obey, to believe, to enjoy, which is Paul's picture of our orientation to the law. There is an incapacity. There is an internal distancing. I'm not able to do what I want. There is a division within an incapacity to really believe. And one's doing it is disconnected from belief. It's disconnected from ethics. Ethics is, and I think this is the sign, in a law versus grace religion, what they do not understand is, no, we're called to obedience. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, seen or, or known, and has, as having been wrought in God. The light of Christ is an ethic, it is an obedience, that we're enabled to carry this thing out, to walk as Jesus walked. The claim to behold Jesus' glory in the events you know, of the historical ministry, I believe entails the vision then of this belief system. 
uh, John, you know, in the other Gospels, they see the transfiguration. There is no transfiguration in the Gospel of John. Uh, there is just the overall ministry, and I believe the passion, and what we see then is a, is a very strong affirmation of the deity of Christ. But the same event in John falls on either blind eyes or those who have the glory of God, who see the glory of God. Everybody's, you know, at the same wedding, sees the same thing, but see, some see the glory of God, and some just see more wine. The paralytic is raised, some see the glory of God, some see the laws being broken. I believe this being, this capacity for seeing the glory of God is one that's always posed to us in Christ. What the eyewitnesses beheld is not only events themselves, you know, not everybody believed, not everybody interpreted it as God's glory. But these events then have a meaning, a theophany. God is revealed. First John puts it, and this is my conclusion. He says three things. Those who continue in sin have not seen God. There is an incapacity in an ethical misdirection. Those who, this is number two, those who contemplate seeing him thereby become pure like he is pure by seeing Christ truly. This involves an ethical purification. So the mark of of seeing is being changed and transformed. And number three, God's children will be fully transformed. We're in the process of being transformed into his likeness. So the law is the law. The law is doing it and nothing is to be done. This is the false diagnosis the world hands us. This is the interpassive stance which false religion promotes. And belief intervenes into this darkness. Our life becomes a life of hope as we focus on the image of Christ rather than the image in the mirror. And this focused belief brings about a conformity to the image of the Son and a reconstitution of who we are. The work of the law is displaced, Paul says, by the law of the spirit of life, which results in freedom from slavery to the diagnosis that we've been handed. And we can cry out, Abba, Father, thus reconstituting the subject as a child of God. Instead of a disabling passivity, we can walk as he walked, love as he loved, and live as he lived. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.